Welcome to this edition of When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine, a discussion of sustainable living and what that means to you and me. I am Jay Warmke. And I'm Annie Warmke just today. Though. Just for today. And yeah. to, uh, to just for today, we're going to talk about urban food forests or God's little half acre. And I know you were saying it's third, a third of an acre. Well, it is the one we're talking about specifically. But this is, this is um, you know, in, in the abstract. And today we're joined by Chad Cully. And Chad, uh, you're a graduate student there at Cornell University. So... Chad, welcome, and why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization that you're participating in there? I am, yeah, as you said, I'm a, a graduate student at um, Cornell University. I'm in the field of natural resources and, and the environment, and um, so I'm actually part of a program called the Masters of Professional Study Program, so it's a one-year graduate program here at Cornell. And um, I am working here in the McDaniels Nut Grove to help um, get that back up and running. I've been kind of sitting dormant for a while, and that's, that's kind of my study area. I'm working with a guy named Ken Mudge up here to, to do that. We taught a class this semester, um, and uh, it was actually a forest farming practicum, so, and we've done a lot of planting of nut trees and shrubs and herbs there um, to you know in in the class with the students so yeah well, one one thing i i was hoping to talk about is um when i brought when jay brought up about god's little one third of an acre um is to talk more to talk about um, food forests, but in particular, what you are putting together as part of your your graduate program and how you're working, not just with us, but I know with other people, to create these small food forests. Um, and for us, it's demonstrating that what you could do with a, a, a an urban lot. So if you lived in, a, you know, a city and you had a small uh, space in your yard you could actually create um, a food forest by using, as we always say, all the real estate. So trees and then things that grow under that and things that grow under that to make it sound as simple as possible. So tell us about your projects and your field of study and where you want to go with that. Yeah, so talking about kind of two different places right now. Again, I'm, you know, I'm up here in Ithaca, New York at Cornell and the McDaniels Nut Grove. That's an existing forest here. Um, it was planted by uh, Dr. McDaniels back in, I believe, the early 1940s. Um, and he, uh, he, he planted a lot of hickory trees in particular, but there are some walnut trees down there as well. So a lot of grafted hickories, so some selected varieties that he selected from farmers up here in New York. Um, Anyway, the point there being is that we're working underneath an existing canopy of nut trees. So we're planting a lot of um, shrubs that have berries, you know, edible berries or some herbs that have some sort of medicinal or edible use underneath that canopy. So that would be uh, forest farming. That's a little bit different from what we're doing at your house, which is in an empty pasture. Um, there's nothing out there. It's just grass. So we're forest gardening out there. And that's technically speaking, not a sort of, uh, it's not a recognized um, 
agroforestry practice. Although I guess in our defense, we're probably doing more what, what I would call alley cropping because we're actually planting in rows and we're doing some uh, mixed cropping and eventually there, there may even be some annual crops grown underneath those plants. So, so I would call it alley cropping. Um, yeah, is that enough of uh, an explanation, Annie, what you're looking for? Yeah, well, and I think, you know, one of the things, I guess when I look at online what people say or what they're doing with either food forests or forest gardening, I, I use those terms interchangeably, um, is they're using the real estate that exists so it's not just low to the ground. It's at different levels and everything is pushed in together like in a forest. And so I find that fascinating because I think indigenous people grew food that way long before the white boys ever showed up here. And so uh, what, I, what I also like to think about is... Yeah, I think, I think there's some truth to that, yeah. Uh, I like to think about how this applies to uh, climate adaptation. And clearly we're past the point of, you know, mitigation or fighting back against uh, climate change. We have to be adapting. And that's where for us uh, it, with our, the land that we have that we're starting to, well, not starting, we've been thinking about it for quite a while, but really doing something about um, climate adaptation with certain plants. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today is what kind of plants could we fit into an urban environment? Because obviously we're mostly going to be thinking about smaller plants, like not pecan trees like we're thinking about, but smaller trees and smaller bushes so that they fit into the environment. So I'm just wondering how do you, how do you do that? How do you start out figuring out what to do and what the climate adaptation stuff says so that you get it right and you don't end up with everything dead in eight or 10 years? Yeah, that's, that's pretty tricky. <laughs> so that's kind of what, that's why I'm up here at Cornell, I guess. Um, I guess my, my personal sort of um, spin on that answer would be that I'm, you know, I'm up, I'm up here to sort of gain a foundation in, in uh, forest ecology and ecosystems ecology, because I, you know, I felt like in order to make those sort of land management decisions responsibly that, you know, to have a, a foundation in ecology would be, you know, the best way to proceed. So, um, you know, choosing what trees are going to survive um, climate change, that's a pretty tricky subject. Um, and even, even maybe with sugar maple, where a lot of people sort of believe that that tree will sort of move north and no longer be even here in New York, um, you know, I don't think that's I don't think that's a guarantee. So there's still some debate about whether or not, you know, genetically there's enough plasticity in that tree. Will it stick around or, or not? Um, so I guess, um, yeah, there's a, there's a much longer answer there, but I guess for me personally, what I had done, you know, in my own backyard before I started to, to study some of these things was I just more or less looked for, trees that I, I felt like fit or, or shrubs even that fit very so, sort of solidly um, within the 
in the um, species range. Um, so yeah. if you were to search around on the USDA website and you say you find, a, for example, maybe we find a range map of the pecan tree, which is Caria illinoisensis, and, and, and you see that maybe northern Kentucky, where my plot of land is, fits right in the middle, maybe even at the southern edge of the range map for the pecan tree, which is actually not true. I'm just uh, sort of given a, no, right. I, no, I don't I get recall it. exactly what the range map for the pecan tree looks like. But in any case, I, I've just sort of searched for a species that has a, that, that, that your, your property fits right in the middle of the range map. Don't find something where you're kind of um, at the southern edge, I guess. If you're at the southern edge, then ostensibly, like as climate change happens, you know, you might be outside of the range of that tree. So, and if you're at the northern edge, yeah, maybe, you know, in 20 years, you could start to grow, I don't know, apricots in Cincinnati, which I'm doing, but I'm at the kind of northernmost edge of the range for where a, you know, an apricot will grow in North America. Um, and it happened last year, but it probably won't happen again next year maybe it will who knows um, so no guarantees but I, you know i mean as the climate changes it's it's not it's not changing overnight so it's you know it's like at this point i think it's the the amount of temperature change that's happened is not uh it's it's not as massive as as what sometimes us gardeners want it to be so that we can say grow tea plants in our yard because we yeah. get excited about those things <laughs> Well, one of the things that is a challenge is not just those changes, because I've, I've done a lot of looking at pecans, and uh, pecan trees are in the same family as hickory, which makes them really hopeful for southern Ohio, anyway, that, that being at that edge of the range. But a lot of the data now says pecans are going to be able to grow further north. So there's that. But I think what we're concerned about one is that, that we're going to be introducing plants that have similar ability to be a host for insects that are also found on plants that are growing now, trees like hickory that grow or walnuts. So what kind of trees could we introduce that, you know, it's a gamble, but that have the same ability to be habitat? But then the other thing we're fighting is not just the change in temperature, I don't think. I think it's the extreme weather events. Um, that's where I see us really struggling as, as um, agriculture people, as natural resource people, is those extreme weather events. You know, how do we deal with, uh, you know, 10 below zero when it normally is, uh, you know, the coldest day is five uh, above. So, and it's going to come for two days and then it doesn't happen again for, you know, a year where all the hurricanes and the wind and all that stuff. So, so I think we have to build that into our planning. And in an urban setting, that's even maybe more of a challenge because uh, you've got to be thinking about all the different things, the weather events that could be extreme in your own community. So, and then how to utilize that space so it doesn't, you know, kill the house because you're growing food in your yard. So, 
Um, but that's something you're working on in terms of design and planning and things like that. Okay, Annie. So I think um, what you're asking is, well, what, what, how do we design for extreme climate events? And, you know, not, none of the answers here are really straightforward. So I apologize. <laughs> and this is not straightforward either. I, you know, again, I think what's really helpful is to find um, to, to find a lot of reference material. I'll give an example here. One, one book that I use a lot, it's called the manual of woody landscape plants by a guy named Michael A. Durr. And it's really wonderful, very large book. It's quite expensive, but if you're in the business of doing this sort, this, this type of thing, then what you want is to be able to find, you know, a specific tree or, or maybe a handful of different trees that, that very specifically suit your needs. So if you say, okay, well, I need a tree, I would, I would prefer it to, to be sort of on the maybe more, a little, you know, slightly on the northern end of the range a little bit. So as climate changes, maybe, you know, it, it fits more towards the center. Okay. So you kind of check that box and then you, you kind of move on to the next box and you start to say, okay, well, I want it to be drought tolerant. I want it to be able to get in Ohio. I know where I, where you are, Annie, you're going to get really dry. It's going to be dry probably from, you know, mid July, uh, probably through the end of September, pretty dry. So you want it to be able to survive that. So you kind of look for, you know, I don't know, uh, maybe a tree, like, let's say, um, let's just use the, pecan tree again as an example that tree should be able to survive that so you okay check that box now can it tolerate you know heavy amounts of rain for a long time sure it can but you know it's not gonna it's not gonna sit in standing water so you know as long as you don't plant it down where it you know it floods and it stays flooded for i don't know let's say a month um then you know, it should be fine. Uh, so, you know, checks that box too. Um, now, is it going to stand up to our straight line winds, the derechos, you know, because that's, that's a disturbance event in, in our area that, that, you know, the forests, you know, they need a, a disturbance event in order for the bigger trees to die, you know, so that the younger trees can, can get some uh, light down to the forest floor and then those little trees grow. So that disturbance event that creates, you know, that opportunity for smaller trees in our area is going to be the straight line winds typically, or sometimes tornadoes, but those straight line winds are going to take out big clumps of forest. And if you want to select a tree that stands up to that, well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> because when those <laughs> winds move really hard, you know, it's just going to take yeah. out almost everything. So it's, it's more a matter of luck at that point. So, you know, I guess I would say as far as like planting those bigger trees right next to your house, it's like, you know, it's, it's more a matter of luck than anything else. I mean, I've got a huge walnut tree next to my house. If, if a straight line wind came through and hit it just right from the west side, probably part of it would fall on my house. But um, I don't know. I guess I, I guess I feel like with the bigger trees in an urban area, what you want to do is kind of pick one maybe or two 
if you can fit them in your lot, get them out kind of on the edge where they're further away from the house. But you do want them to cast some shade on your house, particularly the west side of the house in the summertime. So if you think about in the summertime, creating some pretty good shade from about maybe two o'clock on, on the west side of your house, that's really great for, you know, reducing your, your bills, you know, in terms of air conditioning or just creating some shade at that time of the day where it's really hot. But again, you don't want it right next to your house because we could be, you know, facing more of those extreme weather events, as you've said. I mean, it could be ice too that drops a branch on your house. So, okay. Well, Chad, I mean, I'm, I'm going to break you know, in hard. here real, real quick and, uh, let everybody know that you're listening to When the Biomass Hits the Wind Turbine with Jay and Annie Warmke, reminding you it is indeed the end of the world as we know it. And thank God. Thank God. So, Chad, you were just talking about the extreme weather events, but it strikes me, um, Annie had mentioned about uh, space utilization. And since we're talking a bit about urban food forests here, it seems like this is part of an evolutionary process where in the post-World War II world we had these farms that were out in the in the hinterlands and they began to become industrialized for focusing on monoculture and then we started to see in more recent decades the um, beginning of um, farmers markets with with uh, you know the truck farming kind of activity but these were still largely the producers were were in you know, the hinterlands a bit more. Now we're starting to draw some of the production into the urban centers. And I just have this analogy in my head of the tiny house for, for shelter. And now this is like tiny, tiny farm, um, you know, on these little lots. And, and just as tiny houses have to use every available space, you know, to its maximum, for the living facility, these farms have to use every available space. So could you maybe expound upon that? Tell me I'm, I'm full of nonsense. And <laughs> um, I mean, you're used to telling me that. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, just, just see if I'm on the right track in this sort of movement where we brought uh, distribution of localized food produce into the city centers. Now we're saying let's produce some of the food a little closer to that as well. Yeah, Jay, I think that's a, an excellent question. I mean, that's that really gets at the heart of, you know, what we're trying to do, especially in a, a tight space and, you know, in an urban lot, which is exactly what my place is. I've got 2,000 square feet. So, you know, really what I started what, with was an empty lot minus one pretty large black walnut tree. So basically I had to design everything around that black walnut tree because I didn't want to take that out. Um, and so for me, I had to get in and, and then work in a space that was maybe anything 20 to, well, maybe about 20 feet tall, kind of, was my height maximum. And then, every, you know, anything kind of smaller than that. So I was designing sort of downward from about 20 feet because that black walnut is, I don't know, it must be 50 feet tall, something like that. And it's a pretty big tree. So yeah, you're sort of starting with that taller tree layer and then you're working down to like maybe, you know, medium or small trees and then big shrubs, small shrubs. And now you're down to the herb layer and then down to the, um, you know, in, in the ground layer. So your tubers, um, you know, 
ground nuts, that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, additionally, you can add a vine layer. So you've got all these taller trees and shrubs, you could have some vines climb those things. So it's really maximizing space. Once you, I think, I think once you start to get into designing the vine layer, you really, now you, you know, you're really cooking because that vine layer is, <laughs> you know, you're really, it's like, a, it's like, it's almost like you're inside a, a studio apartment in New York City and, and to maximize space, you're hanging in your bicycle from the wall and you're, you know, you're, you've got shelves that are all the way up to the ceiling because, you know, you're really, you're maximizing space now, but you've been there for a while when you start to do that stuff. So in the tiny home, I know you're doing that kind of thing too. And it, it is really about maximizing space. I think when you get a lot of people doing that at one time, you know, that, that's, again, that's, that's when you're really cooking. So that's, I think what we would be, look, be looking for is for many people to do this all at once. I, and my personal opinion is that, you know, this only really works if a lot or everyone is doing this and a lot of people need to do it. And that's, you know, when the adoption rate comes up, I think then you'll start to see people trading back and forth some of the things that they're, they're doing on their property that would be pretty neat uh, well i think if you're going to try and uh, have massive adoption of this kind of concept in an urban environment then you've got some other issues that that at least in my mind start to play like like zoning issues code issues um theft of your produce vandalism um you know uh buried utilities overhead utilities uh so so are these issues that can be addressed in the beginning planning of, of an urban garden? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. Um, so yes, I've, I've personally encountered some of this. I live underneath some utility lines. You do need to be mindful of these things when you get started, you know, look up in the air, see where your utilities are because that tree, if it grows into the utility lines, utility company is going to cut it down and they don't really have to ask permission. Um, they can just cut it down if it's in the way. Not even and just the tree. If, you know, they, might decide, things, they might decide other things are going to impede even if they aren't. So I think that's a really important thing yeah. to consider. I mean, we're running into that on your property a little tiny bit, I think, with our uh, forest garden out there. It's, you know, there are some utility lines that run through the the top end of it. So, yeah, and I mean... I think too, Jay, if, if, if you start to add in animals, you know, that's, there's another sort of issue for, you know, zoning and, uh, you know, whatever your codes are locally. I mean, if you want to add in ducks or chickens or that kind of thing, which is or another bees. kind of dimension of all bees, of this. If you think bees, about bees. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that. Yeah, or goats. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> but I can, I can see, you know, the, a lot of the challenges, um, uh, come from wanting to actually have a mini farm on a, you know, less than a third acre of a lot. But I also see um, th the other challenges, and I think you've experienced this in other programs that you've worked at, like vandalism and theft. And um, I did just recently see that yep. Atlanta has the biggest inner city or it's food forest or I don't remember the exact title but something about Atlanta having the biggest something about food forest and and free it was said free for free food 
And I'm just thinking back when I had done some work with uh, the ho- one of the housing projects in town and they decided they were going to make this community garden with the people who lived in the apartment buildings. And the first year they were so sad because they had all these beautiful watermelons and pumpkins and somebody came in the night and took all of them right as they were uh, ripe. And I, I was so impressed because the man who was doing primarily helping because he was more agile than the other people, uh, he said, all right, next year. Well, so they want to put up a fence and electrify and zap people and everything. And he says, no, we'll just plant more and we'll put up a sign. And that's what they did the next year. And yeah, not, yeah, not, I think that's, that's it right there. Yeah, for all those people out there that are doing this sort of thing in an environment that's sort of crowded in a city, you know, if somebody comes and vandalizes your, your place, take it as a compliment. You're doing something right. Because, you know, when, you, when you're doing this sort of thing and, you know, you're, you're growing a lot of interesting plants, uh, maybe big pieces of fruit, the reason people are coming to vandalize is because they've found it to be interesting. And, you know, maybe there's something else going on there, but they've just generally found it to be interesting and they vandalize a little bit. Your plants are going to survive more or less. I had some vandalism just a couple days ago here at the Nut Grove in Ithaca and it breaks your heart a little bit, but I think it means we're doing some, we're, we're doing it right. <laughs> That's why they came and vandalized because they don't just go vandalize any random piece of forest. I mean, there's no point in vandalizing that. It's not interesting. So once we make it interesting, that's when they come and vandalize. And, you know, the nut grove is, it's right off of the bike trail. It's right across from Cornell's campus. It's a, uh, you know, it's a busy sort of spot in Ithaca. And it's, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's basically public. Um, so people walk through it all the time. So anything we do down there, you know, people come and pick our pawpaws. At some point, once all these shrubs that we planted this year grow, they'll come and pick the berries. And I think that's great. Um, I've had the same thing happen at public gardens I've worked at in downtown Cincinnati, and we get lots of vandalism. It happens all the time. Um, but I, I just want to say back to Jay's question, you know, like the people that are working in landscaping are dealing with, you know, these sort of utility lines or even maybe gas lines or water lines underneath the ground, you know, call before you dig. There's a reason that those signs, you, you know, you see them all the time. Do, you know, do call before you dig. <laughs> Don't just go planting trees in your yard without knowing what's in the ground. You know, you need to know what's down there first. Um, but yeah, I would say generally speaking, kind of, you know, talk to your landscaping crew if you have a landscaping crew if you're just doing your own landscaping then call before you dig but look up in into the air make sure you're not getting any utility lines in 20 years and and um you know really try to think ahead as in terms of how big those trees are going to get that's i guess the best piece of advice i can give you if you plant a uh, white oak tree you know it's going to take a long time for that tree to get big but eventually it will so think of try to think ahead in terms of how big it'll get um okay chad i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to cut you off there um we're at the end of our time you've been listening to when the biomass hits the wind turbine with jay and annie warmke we want to thank chad cully who's uh changing the world one plant at a time 
And we want to thank our Emmy award-winning producer, Adam Rich. Thank you for spending just a little bit of time with us. And as your grandmother hopefully told you, the secret to a happy and sustainable life is... Plant a tree, plant a bush, plant some herbs, enjoy. And bloom where you are planted. Till next time. You can find more information on living sustainably in our unsustainable world at blueRockStation.com.